and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz. Welcome, welcome. I'm delighted to hear to welcome today Dr. Jonathan Balcom, who is the author of many different books, including the one on what a fish knows. So welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Sabrina. Nice Hi. to be here. Yes, how are you? Well, thanks. Enjoying yes. life in the uh, early spring of Canada here. Excellent. So you and I have actually known each other for many years, and you used to be also my professor when I was doing my master's in, in animal studies. So for me, it's really exciting, of course, through, you know, over the years to read your books and study with you and learn from you. So I'm really delighted that today we get to have a great conversation about fishes and also, um, but you're going to tell us all about that later on your new book that is coming out um, on flies. So that's very exciting. Yeah, it's nice to, I'd actually forgotten I, I had been your mentor at one point. You're often my mentor because your expertise goes into areas that I don't have such expertise sometimes. Thank you. Thanks. So maybe you can, for those of uh, the people that are listening that don't necessarily maybe know your books or know you, can you Tell us a little bit about you and your background and, of course, how you got into writing about fishes. Sure. Uh, I've always loved and been fascinated by animals since my earliest memories. So uh, looking back on that, maybe it isn't too surprising I ended up becoming a biologist, in particular an ethologist, one who studies animal behavior. And uh, I always had a deep concern for the well-being of animals, so that probably had a big role in my sort of building a career in the animal protection sector. I worked for a number of nonprofit organizations. I worked for PETA for a short while. I worked for the Humane Society of the U.S. and a couple of other groups. So that was the bulk of my working career. I still work, but I, I'm, I'm now focused more on what I think I do best, which is write books. I do a fair amount of public speaking. I've done a little online teaching and I do some online editing as well. So a kind of piecemeal at this stage in my life in my early 60s. And uh, yeah, where my real passion lies is is trying to correct misunderstandings and underestimations of underestimations of other animals through the science, but also through stories, storytelling, and uh, hopefully, you know, my ultimate goal is I think probably like yours, it's to work towards a much better relationship between humans and the other animals on this planet. Yes, and what is very interesting to me also is that in many of your books, you're also talking very much about animals that are often forgotten or that we don't necessarily talk about very much or species that are kind of on the fringes, if you like, not the usual suspects. So of course, you also talk about elephants and primates, but you talk about farm animals and lab animals and lots of other animals that might not even be visible. And so and that to me is also such an important part that you are highlighting, you know, the plight to all animals that are either in human care or in the wild. That's right. I'm particularly drawn to the, un, the the unpopular animals, the bats, the snakes, the flies, um, the ones that we tend to dismiss and dislike. Uh, not so much fishes in the sense that we we don't dislike them, but we really abuse them. We 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 kill, catch and kill perhaps trillions every year. The numbers are staggering. It's so easy to forget that there each one is an individual with a, a a life that has meaning and value to that individual. So yeah, a lot of my work is driven by a desire to correct the misunderstandings and the and the 
distancing. <laughs> We're in a time of social distancing right now around the world, where we have this dis distancing of, of between us and other animals, and it's based primarily on, on to be blunt, ignorance. We we so the the criteria for writing a book for pick, picking a group of animals to write a book is that there there be a lot of misunderstanding and ignorance about that animal. There be a lot of really good science, and that's certainly the case with fish. Um, and that um, we we don't we mistreat these animals, and so hopefully by correcting the misunderstandings, uh, we can work towards a much better relationship. So that's kind of my overarching goal and what I do with animals. Yes, and so you have been involved in lots of different topics of study and policy and other aspects, and you've also you know been involved in the Open Access Journal of Animal Sentience. So there's lots of different topics here. So perhaps what we could do is start with, you know, talking about your book, you know, the What a Fish Knows. And, you know, I think what is interesting, you know, when I first heard about the book, you know, the title of the book is What a Fish Knows. So What a Fish Knows kind of already implies that fish know stuff, right? Uh, so what can you tell us yeah. about the, the cognitive abilities? Or what is it that fish knows? What have you found out by researching? Yeah, and most of it is looking at the research that other people have done. I'm a, I'm a synthesizer. I, I was never doing field research on fish. I've, I've watched them myself, but, you know, I depend on the creativity, ingenuity, and the curiosity of other scientists. And scientists show that fishes, depending on the species, but I think what applies to one fish may apply to, probably applies to many. We have things like, simple things like recognition and memory, but we also have tool use. We have planning, we have observational learning, uh, problem solving, innovation. We even have referential gesturing, which is extremely rare in non-humans, uh, referential signaling, you know, to make a gesture, to make a signal from one fish to another that says it's referring to something that's separate in time and space. Uh, and that's, that's what makes it referential. Um, and there's at least one example known in fishes, and there's very few you can find in, in nature beyond the human societies that we live in. So really, one of the take-home messages of what a fish knows is not merely that these creatures are emotional and cognitive and that they have meaningful lives, but they are equals among vertebrates. They're, if you look at the panoply of things that fishes do and have been discovered to do through careful scientific studies, we find that they are just as complex, just as certainly diverse, more diverse actually, um, as the other vertebrate animals. We hold mammals up in high esteem. Um, I'm not saying we should hold fishes up in higher esteem, but we ought to give them equal footing to the other vertebrates that we've given them. Yes, and I think like you alluded to earlier, is that often, you know, fishes are, and, and also for example, in your TED talk, you talk about fishes are the ones that we know because we eat them, right? Or the ones that are forgotten because we don't really see them. And, um, and, and often, you know, people really, like you say, misunderstand the animals or they have these, you know, preconceived conceptions about, because in some movie, you know, Dory had a two second memory. And so we have all these ideas about, you know, this is how fishes are or that they don't feel pain. And that's one of the things that you also talk about and write about. But why do you think fishes are are overlooked? Is it because they live under the sea, or you know what is, what is it that um, you know why we think they're so different than than perhaps terrestrial animals? I think a lot of it, Sabrina, is that they do live under the sea. They're they're below the surface of our sensory world. Um, in, until it wasn't until the last half of the 20th century that we developed scuba technology and then you know high sophisticated underwater phot photo photography and cameras that we can go and actually observe them in their natural realms before that the, most of what we knew was probably based on them flopping around on a fishing boat or what we see in a tank in captivity which is uh, certainly not useless but um, not a full view of, of what they can do and now you know scientists can go under and watch fish doing their own thing in their own environments for long periods so um, I think a lot of the reason why we've been ignorant and why we've held fish in the lowest level among vertebrates 
is for so long is that simply they've been out of our view. They've evolved in a different milieu. They've evolved not in the air, not on land, like the mammals, the reptiles, the amphibians, and the birds have done. So we can relate to them more. But the fishes, they're in an alien environment. You know, they have these staring eyes that don't blink. Well, they don't need to blink. They live in an aquatic medium. They don't need to put tears over their eyes. Actually, you know, they, they, they have all the same eye muscles that we have and they swivel their eyes. They're, they're aware, they're alert. Uh, they do complex things. Um, so I think the alienation we've had from them is because of them literally living under the surface. We can look out over a lake or an ocean and there may be thousands of fishes just under the surface, but we're not seeing them. We're not witnessing them. So that combination of being out of our view and having certain characteristics that we don't relate to as much because they don't, they haven't evolved in the air um, are, are the primary reasons why I think we've held them in such low esteem. Yes, and this is also when you talk about, you know, fish not feeling pain or, you know, people's ideas that fishes don't feel pain also has to do with the fact that they just express themselves differently than other animals might do or they don't like at least audible sounds that we can hear. Um, all these different aspects that, that perhaps have to do with the fact that people treat them differently. Would you say that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think a lot of it's by just by absentia. I don't. I don't think m most people probably have a strong opinion one way or another about whether fish feel pain. They maybe have never thought of it, but scientists have thought of it, and it's it's a very important moral uh, issue. And uh, you know, the, the 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 basic way of testing it that some scientists have come up with is to subject the poor fish to a, a presumably painful stimulus, an injection of acid, say, and then um, first of all, see how the fish behaves. And that could be at the physiological level, nerve, nerve firings, but also behavioral level. And then uh, as a further test to give them the opportunity to relieve their pain by putting an, a pain relieving compound, lidocaine or some other drug in some part of their living environment and see if they go there. And if the fishes go there when they've been injected with acid, but they don't if they've been just injected with a, a harmless saline solution. Well, that to me is pretty compelling evidence that they are experiencing something negative and they want to relieve it and they, they, they have the wherewithal to relieve it. It's even more compelling if you, make it, if you make it costly for them to relieve that pain. So let's say where you put the lidocaine, it's a brightly lit area with nowhere to hide. Fishes will avoid that kind of area, especially little fishes like zebra fish. Um, and if they still go there to get pain relief, if they've had the acid injection and only if they've had the acid injection, to me that is, I mean, borderline irrefutable evidence that these animals uh, feel pain, that they feel negative. Uh, they're motivated to relieve the pain and they're motivated enough that they'll pay a cost to do it. And then when they're feeling better again, they go back to the, the, the part of their tank where they can hide behind vegetation and rocks and then they feel safer. Uh, this paradigm has been used in rats to test for pain in rats. Although, you know, between you and me, I'm not sure we should ever need to feel the need to test for pain in rats. Isn't it obvious that they can feel pain? Their fellow mammals, they squeak when they, when they, you know, if something steps on their foot or what have, what have you. We, we can witness this, but uh, with fish, they are so much more alien to us that uh, people need a little more convincing. Well, the science is pretty convincing as far as I'm concerned. Yes, and this aspect when you you actually write that you know the question of whether fish can fish can experience pain is of cardinal importance, and and this is because they are so different. It's not like you could step on their feet on and then you could hear or see their reaction. Uh, is that is that what you mean when you write you know the importance of trying to understand this in an animal that is so different from us? Yeah, there's that. I also I like to say that sentience, which is the capacity to feel, it includes pains and pleasures and all sorts of psychological and physical sensations. Sentience is the bedrock of ethics. The reason that we care about others, the reason that others' lives matter is because they can have good things or bad things happen to them. If nobody could feel any pain or pleasure, I'm not sure it would be possible for good or bad things to happen in the experiential sense for that individual. But, but if they do have those sensations, if they have the capacity to feel good or the capacity to feel bad, then to me, that means we, um, they, they have lives that matter to them and things can go well or badly. They can have good bad days and bad days, good moments and bad moments. And that means they are of moral import. That means that they, they, they occupy a space on the ethical landscape and that we 
ought to be uh, considerate and hopefully compassionate in our inter interactions with them. So pain yeah. is really, pain to, in my mind is the fundamental, the most important characteristic uh, by which an animal or an organism has moral uh, significance. Yes, and with that you mean the, the, the type of pain also, or the intensity of it, because well, I'm, of course I'm, I'm pain can be expressed in physical pain, psychological pain. Yeah. So can you elaborate a little bit for, for people? Yes, who, I'm using uh, the word pain very broadly there. Uh, I generally thinking in terms of uh, physical pain, um, you know, some insult to the body, uh, a, a wound, uh, a bite, a stab, you know, uh, when we fall off our bike, we feel pain. It's negative. It's not a good experience. We're not happy about it. And we have to be careful while we heal. And our body continues to remind us that it wants to heal. Because if you bump that injured part, it really hurts even more than when you originally in injured it. Uh, it's like nature's way of saying, don't do that. You know, you've got to get better. And pain, I think, you know, pain evolved to, to remind us and to teach us to avoid doing bad things that may remove ourselves from the gene pool. So uh, that's getting you know more theoretical, but um, you know pain is. I, I've kind of lost the thread there in terms of I don't know if I responded to your question. Yeah. So the of course, if you we talk about sentience and about you know the ability to have um, different types of sensations, but also having an emotional life. So the psycho the psychology right. of animals, and therefore you know would we then also extend pain to psychological pain like we talk about in mammals when it comes to fear and anxiety or you know loss um, some of these psychological pains that other animals than humans uh, are able to feel and experience absolutely i spent several years researching the evidence for uh, psychological pain for one of a better term uh, suffering deprivation you can use this, a number of words for animals in laboratory settings uh, in particular i was looking at the evidence that uh, being in a cage in a small cage if you're at or mouse, the most commonly used mammals in research worldwide uh, it's a negative experience uh, the, the, and, and it's not so much a physical pain, but an emotional pain, a psychological suffering, deprivation, confinement. These animals go crazy after a while. They, they develop these behavioral stereotypes, these repeat, repetitive, meaningless behaviors, digging for hours at the bottom of their cage, usually at night when the researchers are at home and not witnessing this, gnawing for hours at the, at the wire bars of their cage. Um, not being able to forage, not being able to find and choose mates, not being able to choose social partners. These are really important things for a lot of animals. And if you deprive them the opportunity to do those things, they, they do what we do. They become abnormal. They develop neuroses. They develop uh, behavioral pathologies. So yes, uh, back to your question and your comments, uh, we need to very much include the potential for psychological pain and psychological suffering in many settings that may be far more important than physical pain. Uh, quite aside from the experiments that are often harmful that these animals are used in in laboratories, there's the day-to-day -day drudgery, uh, and that's that doesn't really capture the negativity of it all. The, the, the deprivation of being in these cages often housed alone for very social animals. That's a terrible uh, hardship. And somebody yes. who has expertise has expertise in zoos. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, you know full well how animals, many animals, particularly those with big home ranges like large predators, how they don't they don't thrive in uh, captive settings typically. I think it very much depends on you know where the animals are housed and the way that they're housed. So I think there's very good examples of large predators having good environments where they can actually thrive and have good animal welfare. And then of course, there's also, uh, it's also true that there are many facilities that don't have good, you know, environments for big animals or small animals. So yes, it is important that we look individually, you know, where are we doing well and doing, you know, justice and where the animals can thrive and where we don't. And I think going back to fishes, what will be interesting also, because you talk about the emotional life of animals and their cognitive capacities, it's extremely intriguing also then to think about psychological pain, right, in, in fishes and especially in fishes that also are social and that, you know, we often talk about the social, the, 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 um, 
the ways that fishes school and so on, that that is a way of social support and protection. But we often talk more mechanically about it, right? And so, but do fishes have friends or do they school, you know, usually more with others and do they like to hang out with certain fishes more than others? So th those are some of the questions that, that you then throw up and you start to muse about, right? That, that I'm sure that you have spent lots of time thinking about when we're thinking about the psychological and the emotional life of, of fishes. Indeed, yes, I have thought about that, and fortunately, so have scientists, and they've 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 revealed that fishes uh, do know others as individuals. Fishes recognize us by our faces, at least according to at least one study I'm aware of. They uh, they can recognize our faces, and there's a lot of anecdotes of people who say, "Yeah, my fish knows that I'm the one who feeds them, and only comes out when it's me and not not my husband or whatever." Um, so they, they have preferences, uh, they, they have their shoal mates, their favorites in groups, not all species, but certainly the social ones, uh, you know, some of them mate for long periods. And um, uh, so they're very selective and they recognize individuals and they have their, have their favorites. Okay, excellent. Yes, I once heard a story from an aquarist that uh, talked about when he walks into the room, it, he said, it seems like they're, you know, cueing on the vibrations in the floor, uh, in the water that they come out when they meet, when they, you know, feel people coming close that uh, they, they know versus people that they don't. So, yeah, it's, of course, very, and I'm sure, you know, just like when you ask dog owners or cat owners about, you know, do, does your animal have an emotional life, you know, people have no question about that. And then... Um, that's probably very true also for many people that have fishes in their home and care for them. They, they talk about them as feeling animals and of course also animals with personalities. And, and you talked also about, you know, fish personality. Can you talk a little bit more about what, what the science says about that? Sure. Um, yeah, there's been studies done. I mean, there's a lot of anecdotes of people. I, I relate some stories in my book, like Mango, a puffer fish who lived for 11 years with a, a woman, a businesswoman in Seattle, and they would they would interact when she came home. They would look, look at each other, and puffer fishes have their eyes on the front of the face. That's one of the reasons why their charming visage is on the cover of my book. Uh, and uh, they would play this back and forth game on either side of the aquarium glass, running back and forth and interact and that sort of thing. I mean, the, the mango probably got a little bored and unstimulated during the day while she was out. So he was probably very happy to see her come home. And then Jasper, a, a blue discus fish in Florida who would, um, who would swim into his guardian's hands, his pet keeper's hands and, and just lie on his side while she stroked him with her thumbs. And, you know, some people might say this is make-believe and, you know, I don't believe that story. But nowadays we have the Internet and we have YouTube and you can actually watch videos that show fishes swimming back into their keeper's hands and being picked up and trusting them and then being gently tossed back in the water and they swim back and they like to be stroked. And there's studies from the wild that show that fishes do like the feeling of touch. Some of them do at least and that they can get stress release from that, relief from that. So... These anecdotes, while they don't carry a lot of scientific weight, in the context of the science it's done, uh, both directions, sometimes it's the anecdote that predates the scientific study. Sometimes it's the scientific study that, that matches the anecdote. Um, but uh, it's, it's nice to see that we have pretty decent scientific um, observations and in some cases experiments that uh, help explain what we seem to be seeing in the anecdotal setting in the, in the uh, pet keeping category. Yes, I, I completely agree. I think it's so interesting, especially like what you say about the, the videos online, all the you know interactions that people have with the animals in their care, whether they're fishes or rats. And, and of course, um, the late Professor Jak Panksepp, he has these beautiful videos where he's playing with the rats and you know he's like tickling them and then he puts them far away and they run straight back into him because they want to be tickled again. And then of course, if you watch these videos of people with their fishes, you know, you see almost the same, right? They're like interacting and then sometimes they throw them away and they come swimming back. And, you know, it's almost like you're seeing the same thing, right? Yeah, that's right. right. It's, a, it's, it's yeah. an echo, the same kind of behavior, just in a different uh, medium, a different setting. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's really, really so interesting. And, and I think these, these types of anecdotes and how people interact with the animals and how they play are such 
you know, there's quite a lot of papers nowadays coming out where people have analyzed YouTube videos, right, for certain either synchronicity, it was just uh, uh, last week, I think, a paper of dogs and horses playing together, and it was only because someone had seen a video, right, that suddenly they thought to think, and there's a wealth of information out there, and luckily also lots on fishes. So, and especially for those of us listening that are working with, with fishes in aquariums and zoos, you know, we have a lot of, of materials online also for the enrichment of the animals and caring and the training of fishes to take uh, take care of them and their, their own health care. Uh, so it's really exciting uh, medium also to use for everybody. Yeah, having written two books on animal pleasure, which is a, a has been a neglected subject in biology, it's it's becoming less so. Fortunately, uh, I'm I'm always uh, pleased to see these videos how they show animals uh, not fitting the the sort of the old stereotype of nature red in tooth and claw and a constant struggle for survival all the time, which the nature documentaries still tend to convey to us. Um, sure, there are challenges to life, as, as with our lives, certainly wild animals have dangers and challenges that they must face often on a daily basis, probably always, mostly on a daily basis, but that doesn't mean they don't have time or the, or the motivation to uh, engage in play, uh, social grooming or preening, you know, other behaviors that are pleasurable, pleasurable for them. It's not all doom and gloom for animals in the wild, they have, they have a lot of uh, rewards as well. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. And so the interesting part also when it comes to, you know, cognition and thought in fishes, you portray fishes as not unfeeling dead-eyed feeding machines, but as sentient, aware, social, and even Machiavellian animals. So how can a fish be Machiavellian? Have you got, because you heard stories about, you know, different personalities and so on, but do you have like stories with us to share? about how a fish can be Machiavellian. What does well, that mean? I, sure, yeah. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not coming up with that term original. It, it, somebody else used the term um, in a scientific paper, Redwan Bashari, who is at, uh, has been, and I think still is at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland. He's one of the, sort of the stars, the superstars of fish research into fish social behavior. And uh, he and his acolytes and his students uh, have, um, done published must be dozens of studies on the social dynamics of cleaner client re relationships the, the, the sort of famous among those scientists who are interested in fishes uh, the cleaner client mutualism as it's called the mutualism being a relationship that both parties benefit and uh, it's a widespread particularly on reefs and it's really well studied and it's Bashari, based on the research that he, he and colleagues have done and, and some other research on fishes in other realms, uh, this, one of these papers he wrote is Machiavellian Intelligence in Fishes. I think it's actually a book chapter in a book all about fish cognition and behavior. Um, and why is it Machiavellian? Well, it involves trust. It involves deception. It involves cheating. It involves mollifying those you've cheated. Uh, to make them uh, perhaps less angry at you or or maybe that this maybe change their minds that they'll actually will want to come back and get your services in future these cleaner fish and the most well studied is the blue street cleaner wrasse uh, a small fish on reefs they work in individually or in pairs or small groups uh, in a particular station of the reef that they stay there and other so-called client fish of uh, well over 100 species know where that station is and they know which cleaning team it is it's a little bit like you have your favorite barbershop or your hairdresser and you go back to that one because you've developed a relationship with them. And the cleaners, they pluck parasites off, uh, algae, luffing skin, you know, various undesirables from these client fish. And in some areas of the, of the ocean and the reef, uh, parasites are a real serious problem. And so they want to get them off. But they do, they don't just so they get a they get a parrot removal service and the cleaners get food. So that's the mutualism. That's the that's the dual benefit. But it's these clients seem to really enjoy it. Some of them seem to become addicted. They they visit these cleaning stations more than they probably should, and um, the cleaners know them. They recognize them as individuals, and and they won't probably do as good a service or as lengthy a service. They track time. They know how long it's been since they last came, and they'll know if they're going to have a lot of parasites. Is it worth swimming into their mouth? Is it worth swimming into their gills? You can see the trust here because a lot of these clients are are bigger predatory fish, including sharks. 
and yet they swim into their mouths and they don't get eaten. It's not a good idea to eat your business partner. But yeah. they'll, the studies show that they do a, a shoddy job. They often do a shoddy job if there aren't many clients in the queue. Uh, they're, they're not going to lose eBay ratings because there's not many reputations. The, the reputation isn't at stake. If there's a lot of clients w waiting for their turn, cleaners tend to do a better job. Uh, one of the bad things they do is they mucus nip. They'll take a little bit of mucus off the client and the mucus, uh, that's pa painful. It's a protective layer. It's also very nutritious for the cleaners. Uh, but they probably know they shouldn't do it and the clients know they shouldn't do it and the clients jolt, they signal, maybe it's a feeling of pain as well, but they certainly signal to the cleaners that they know what they did and, and the cleaners may mollify the clients by uh, giving them a massage with their pectoral fins, giving fluttering their pectoral fins. So, so these behaviors suggest, um, they suggest an awareness of doing good, uh, doing not so good and making up for it. So it's really worthy of the term Machiavellian intelligence. It's very complex. It's based on long-term relationships built on trust and, uh, and trying to maintain trust in sometimes trying circumstances. Yes. So you have given really amazing examples, you know, about, okay, also memory and keeping track and learning. Do you have some other examples of memory and learning in fishes that you can share or maybe like personal stories between fishes and people? Well, the fact that fishes um, have, have individual recognition in their societies is is certainly uh, evidence of long-term memory you, you know recognition is a memory function to be able to recognize other individuals over long periods um, you know and these animals recognize and remember remember their migration routes so in that regard they also have have good memory uh, cullen brown one of the fish researchers in australia did an experiment with rainbow fish very small fish who have a lifespan of maybe three years and and found that when they were exposed to an escape, there was an escape route that they learned. Uh, it was a, a mesh that moved towards them and was enclosing them in on the, uh, in their in their aquarium. There was a little hole in one corner that they could swim through to get to the other side. That was the escape route. And when he trained them on that, they learned it quite quickly. And other fish learned by watching the ones who'd already learned it, and they learned it quicker that way. So there's observational learning. And then when he tested them 11 months later, I mean, basically a third of their lifespan later, uh, he found that experienced fish immediately went through the escape hole that they had learned a year earlier. Inexperienced ones, naive ones, uh, didn't. They didn't know which way to go, but they very quickly cottoned on by watching the experienced ones, and so they took to doing that. And there's many ways you can you can test these things with repeated trials and such, but they showed the classic hallmarks of, of memory and learning. Uh, they learned the escape route, and they remembered it uh, a long time later. Little wonder, they've got brains, they've got nervous systems, they can move, they can move away from bad things and towards good things. And being able to escape a predator, which this is a threat, like this is the equivalent of a predatory threat, is a very important skill to have. So maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about it, but it does help to demonstrate that to, to allay these, uh, these misconceptions that people often have about fish memories because of films uh, where people get the impression or, or old stories that people think that fishes don't have long-term memories. Right. Yeah. And so you already, you know, talked about Jasper and some other stories and I'm sure in the, all the time that you have, I'm researching the book and looking at videos and talking to so many people, do you have some other like personal stories don't have to be scientific, but personal stories that people had about their fishes or the relationship that they had with their fishes because and they're clearly giving their fishes names so you know it would be nice if you have some other stories for us to share about that relationship that exists um, about yeah let's see if i got any it's, it's been a while since i've read my own book so uh, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm falling a little short on that i do remember one account that was shared with me by a biologist who was charged with looking after a, i think it was a smallmouth bass for the summer at a university in the basement of this building, the fish lived alone in a fairly big tank and uh, she was to feed and look after that fish. And um, she did that, of course, on a, on a regular basis during the summer months. And then the students returned in the fall and um, she remembers watching the tank in the hallway with lots of students around and, and the fish would stay hidden back in the vegetation in the back corner of the tank. Uh, and uh, 
if she, you know, if she was just peeking, then the fish would stay there. But if she came out of her office and walked towards the tank, the, this fish would come out. And it was only her, um, you know, it, it didn't matter what clothes she was wearing, you know, different clothes, different days, uh, all these humans and uh, this fish ignored them. Uh, so clearly recognized her. So that's a nice example of an anecdote that supports what since that time the science has shown, at least with the archerfish, which is dif a different species, that they recognize individuals. I'm actually struggling to remember any other stories. I mean, the Jasper story and the mango story are ones that um, when I give talks about fish, I usually I often mention those ones. Uh, there are several, and I thought I had some on my notes here, but I'm not. I'm not seeing them, so uh, I, I don't. No. I don't. I don't really have any others to suggest. That's absolutely fine. We will probably just be adding some others. Uh, just later, you know, we can uh, put some some notes on there and and uh, you know refresh our memories what the stories were exactly in the book. So that's completely fine, and especially also because you have been, you know, talking about fishes and writing about fishes for a long time about how they can collaborate and plan, like you already talked about their memory. Um, but of course, you know, optical illusions and all all that. But actually. For quite a long time now, and you'll tell us more about that, you have been writing on a completely different subject that has uh, taken your mind to different stories and different research, and that is for your new book that is coming out. I believe it's November, and it's called Superfly. So maybe you can share with us what that book is about, and, and of course, you know, how come you are writing a book on flies? Yeah, great question. I'm glad you're asking about that. Obviously, authors like to promote their books ahead of time. Uh, and I finished writing it in December. And, you know, it's going through the lengthy process from uh, raw manuscript to polished book with photographs and, you know, all the elements that go into a book. So, um, yeah, I've always been absolutely fascinated by insects. They're, bar none, the, the dominant, at least among the larger organisms, not counting microorganisms, but they're the dominant group of animals on earth 80% of all organisms on the planet 80% uh, by species number diversity i believe it is 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 an insect or insects so they're hugely successful they're very omnipresent and among uh, and i was thinking uh, let's do a book on insects and it's just such a broad subject there's so many species uh, most of which are still undescribed by us uh, there's so many things about them i thought let's hone in on a smaller group and, um, you know, there's a lot about bees, uh, which are fantastic animals and so much worth studying and writing about them. There's tons of books about bees, but there are, apart from scholarly manuals uh, about flies, there's very, almost no books about flies per se. So uh, because they are extremely successful, extremely diverse, 160,000 described species and possibly five or more times that many yet to be discovered and described. Um, because they are, they cause a great deal of cultural anxiety uh, for the fact that they are flies or mosquitoes are flies. There's a lot of blood feeding flies out there. Uh, very few people haven't had an encounter with a mosquito. And uh, so we know what they're like and we know how crafty they are and how pesty they are. So we have a lot of uh, personal experiences with flies. Um, but uh, there's this vast realm of, of, unknown flies people never seen them before uh, robber flies long-legged flies you know um, big-headed flies that uh, that have these you know the hedgehog flies that have these appearances and behaviors that are quite remarkable flies are kind of like the uh, opportunists of the animal kingdom they take advantage of opportunities that are presented to them some of them are predators some of them are parasites some of them are kleptoparasites um, some of them are, 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 you know, they feed at plants. Uh, they're hugely important pollinators. We, so, so they cause a lot, of, a lot of duress. They're the leading vectors of killing diseases like malaria. The flies are the only group of animals. In fact, more specifically, mosquitoes are the only kind of animal that kills more humans every year than humans do. Uh, humans are second on that list. Flies are number one. So yeah, there's a lot of bad things about flies. But, but if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be having this conversation because they're absolutely indispensable to ecosystems as, as parts of members of food chains, both as parasites and as predators, but also as food for other animals. Uh, ask a bird. Oh, yeah, I love flies. Um, 
they're cleaner uppers. They do a huge job of cleaning up uh, excrement and rotting bodies. Uh, they're the leaders there. And um, they, uh, they, they perform a number of functions that are just absolutely critical. They also have lesser known benefits such as wound healing. They have antiseptic properties. They eat necrotic tissue only. They don't eat healthy tissue, the, the blowflies that, that are attracted to wounds. Um, and they're used in medicine for that, and also crime solving because flies are the, the certain species of flies are extremely quick to recognize and to detect the presence of a dead person or body or animal. But in, in this context, it's usually a human victim of death. It could be a, a crime, a, a, a murder, or, or an accidental death. But uh, because there's the fidelity with which they um, colonize a dead, a dead human body is so tight. Uh, you can estimate time of death of the victim. And that's a critical piece of information in solving murder cases. You can also determine if the corpse was moved because you might find flies or their maggots or their pupae on a, a body that these flies don't exist in that area. So the body must have been moved. So I, I, I dedicate a chapter to those two elements of, of flies that are a little bit lesser known, a bit morbid, but fascinating. I can tell you it was a real adventure to research and write this book. It was, it was uh, you know, a lot of work, but really enjoyable. They're really fascinating animals. I'm quite proud of the book. I hope it's well received. It'll be interesting to see how much interest it may generate. I mean, flies are not fish and they're certainly not mammals. So they're not like our favorite cuddly animals. Uh, um, but uh, like I say, we all have experiences with them. And so I'm hoping that that will generate some curiosity. Yes, well, I can't wait to read it. I'm sure, you know, it's going to be very, very interesting. And I think there, there is really a lot of people are looking at different types of books, right? Like you say, the books, there's a lot of books on bees and there's ants and there, there's books on dragons, like, you know, the, the reptiles. So it seems that people are really kind of looking forward to reading other things than like the usual suspects that we often talk about, which of course are still very popular, but it's absolutely wonderful that you've dedicated whole book to flies. And yeah, there's so many fantastic and different aspects that uh, like for me, I was, when I was thinking about it, when I learned about your book, I was like, I wonder what kind of surprises like you found when you were reading or researching where you like, Oh really? Like, or is that how it is? Or, you know, so if you if are there any like these nuggets or surprises that you that you, that really stuck with you in the research phase of the writing? I was surprised to read of a study published just last year, I think, showing that male flies enjoy ejaculating. Okay. Uh, it involved genetically modified organism uh, flies, where males were uh, genetically modified. I'm not necessarily a fan of all this research, but. Um, I find it intriguing uh, to think that a, a group of scientists in Israel, in this case, would think to study sexual pleasure in a, in a fly, in an insect. That speaks to what you just said. That says a lot about how scientists are asking questions today that were not being asked before. Um, there was a, a long period in the 20th century, and as you and I both know, when it was taboo to ask questions about animal feelings and animal intelligence because we could never know for sure. Uh, fortunately, we've moved beyond that era now. So, yeah, I mean, they, they genetically modified male flies so that if they were under red light, infrared light, uh, this, there's this chemical compound, corazonin, I think it's called, which would cause them to have an ejaculation. And they found that the flies who had had that genetic modification when they were given a choice between white light or infrared light, which they can't actually see the red light, they would crawl to the infrared light because it, they had a good experience when they went there. Um, there were some other elements of the study also. If they paired the um, the red light with a with a, with a sm different smell, they became to be attracted to the smell. So, you know, I mean, that's a very high tech uh, study, uh, very sciencey. And one, of course, there's going to be you know tons of people going to say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Well, no, it doesn't prove anything. You don't prove anything in science, but it's a very interesting finding, and. Uh, uh, it certainly caught my attention because it was uh, it relates to pleasure. Um, I you know I don't have my notes about flies in front of me, so um, you know off the top of my head, I mean I'm I'm fascinated by the diversity of flies. I'm fascinated by their success, by the specificity. I mean there's there's flies that have the flies are really 
um, what's the word? They're, they're brash and they do things that are pretty dangerous. I mean, surely the most dangerous job description in nature is being a mosquito, a female mosquito who has to try and scalp a mammal. And if it's a human, we've got slapping hands, you know, we've got a good sensory system, we can feel them on our skin and yet they come bumbling in or they, they sneak in to try and take blood, uh, that they do that. There are flies that uh, specialize on, on insects caught in spider webs and the spider may be at one side of this this insect feeding on it and liquefying it with its toxins and there's five flies perched on that creature the victim that are themselves imbibing this this liquid the spider doesn't seem to react to them um, there are some that infest spiders themselves there are flies there are mosquitoes that uh, do a little dance in front of a an ant uh, and they and they they compel the ant to open the mouth, and then they and then they stroke the ant's head, and they stick their proboscis in, and they and they literally like a straw, they suck food out of the uh, sweet food out of the ant's crop. Um, they do uh, quite quite audacious things. Um, there are big robber flies that have been known to take down hummingbirds. Um, there are flies that live in petroleum, the petroleum fly. There are flies that have a wax coating that can, like, like a scuba diver, dive under the water and uh, wow. forage in the bottom like that. There are flies uh, that are hundreds of feet down in some of the lakes in Central Africa. Uh, there's, they, they occupy every continent and they're the only insect that does. Um, so just myriad amazing things that they do. The, the book is organized by how they lead their lives. Uh, but also, and then how they re relate to us, the relationship we have with them. So uh, there was a lot to write about, and I had a big discard pile, a lot of stuff that I just couldn't fit into the, a book of uh, 300 pages. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting you back onto the podcast show to just talk about flies, because that is just like diver flies. I mean, amazing. I can't wait to, uh, to read Superfly. Now, before we wrap up the podcast, one um, aspect that I find extremely important that you have been a part of is this open access journal of animal sentience, which is this interdisciplinary uh, journal about animal feelings. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the highlights and, and also the importance is of, you know, launching and having this type of journal? Yeah, I was really be, uh, pleased and I'm quite proud to have been one of the people uh, initiating this journal called Animal Sentience. It's a completely online journal. It's completely open access, uh, no subscription required, and it's interdisciplinary. So, you know, some of the contributors, a lot of them are biologists, of course, uh, and, and all sorts of areas within that, uh, physiologists, you know, ethologists, et cetera. But there's philosophers and sociologists who weigh in. Uh, the, the journal is interdisciplinary, but and it also encourages contributions, including short contributions, so-called so -called commentaries. Stephen Harned, the scientist and um, scientist who started the journal and runs the journal, uh, you know, he he's done that model before with another journal, uh, which was very successful. So you'll have a, a paper on the, the suggestion that. Um, insects have minds, that insects uh, have uh, sentience and they're aware uh, and they have experiences. And then you'll have 50 commentaries that, that are inv often invited or the authors, you know, you know, send us some names of people who you think might want to comment on this. And the commentary may be just three, 400 words long. It could be very short. Um, so you have this fascinating dialogue on, in these different topics, uh, you know, topics ranging from insect cognition to elephant rescue, um, so a very broad brush in terms of the animals talked about. Uh, it's a it's a terrific journal and and it's it's got a lot in it already after just four years of, of running. Absolutely fantastic. We'll make sure when we post this podcast that we of course post the links to you know all your books and all the information and of course you because you do webinars online and classes online and sometimes you do in-person speaking so we'll make sure that people can contact you and find you or if they want to book you that they know where uh, to go and of course also to the journal so people can have a look at this and and perhaps even also weigh in and write and and get involved in these discussions which is all about you know, animals and what it means for us to care for animals, to protect animals, and to, and to create a planet where we have you know, a more equal base for 
people as well as other animals. And of course, in your writing and what we talked about today with regards to fishes and who are they and what is it that matters to them, and also who are the flies and what matters to them, is at the core of the things that you write about in these two books and also in the other books on animal pleasure and otherwise. So thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really enjoyed it. I don't know if there's anything else that you would like to share with listeners from around the world before we wrap up. Uh, I really enjoyed it too, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess the closing thought would be, uh, it kind of resonates with what we were just talking about, and that is the growing interest in uh, other creatures that were sort of largely ignored or overlooked in terms of their potential for uh, intelligence, cognition, experiences, consciousness, and all that sort of stuff. I have a chapter in my book, Superfly, devoted to the question of consciousness and sentience in, in insects, but um, I also mentioned other groups of animals. Uh, consider the octopus, you know, which is, has been two very successful, um, popular uh, popular science books written on octopuses. People are interested in this stuff. Um, the question of sentience in, in, in insects, these creatures that are so abundant and all around, um, wow, I mean, I, 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 can, I have to think hard to come up with a more interesting question than does an insect actually experience something? Is that fly running around on your, on your desk lapping up little uh, coffee stain? Is that fly actually having fun? Is that fly experiencing it? Is she or he gonna remember it later? Um, you know, and science can shed light on that. And so I think we're in really exciting times. I'm, I'm really glad I chose ethology because it's a really exciting time to be an ethologist. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. And yeah, as soon as everything is ready, then, you know, of course, we will place this post podcast online and, you know, create all the links and everything else so people can find you and find your work. So thanks so much for being with us. Great. Thanks, Sabrina. Bye now. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions. Or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.